Hey, how's it going? I'm your host, Gerhard Lezu, and you're listening to Ship It, a podcast about getting your best ideas into the world and seeing what happens. We talk about code, ops, infrastructure, and the people that make it happen. Yes, we focus on the people because everything else is an implementation detail. I finally had the discussion with Ian that we have been deferring since 2015. Ian used to be the Docker owner within Barclays, a British multinational bank founded over 300 years ago. Ian wrote Docker in Practice, the first and second edition, and continued with three other books, Git, Bash, and Terraform the hard way. Zed Shaw gave his blessing. Did you know that writing a book can make a big difference for your tech career? Anyways, if you want to understand why it's not about the tech, but being comfortable with the uncomfortable, tune in. There are some great articles that we link to in the show notes, including the one on how to waste hundreds of millions on your IT transformation. Simon Wardley spared the tweet, so it's worth reading Ian's post not only because it's true, but also because it's funny. While at it, check out when you should interrupt someone. If you want to follow up on our conversation, reach out to Ian via Twitter. Big thanks to our partners Fastly, LaunchDarkly and Linode. Our bandwidth is provided by Fastly. Learn more at fastly.com. Feature flags powered by launchdarkly.com. And we love Linode. They keep it fast and simple. Check them out at linode.com forward slash changelog. This episode of Ship It is brought to you by Render, the zero DevOps cloud that empowers you to ship faster than your competitors. Here's Anurag Goel, CEO of Render, sharing why developers choose Render over Heroku and how they're innovating much faster. A lot of Render customers come to us from Heroku and they tell us Render is what Heroku could have been. I think it's because we offer a more streamlined approach to hosting modern cloud applications at a significantly better price point. Applications on Render heal themselves and scale automatically, giving developers the features and flexibility of something like Kubernetes, but without any of the complexity. We're always working to bring the latest industry advances to our platform. So your applications can leverage the state of the art in the cloud without you having to do or learn anything. All right, learn more about how Render compares to Heroku at render.com slash compare or email changelog at render.com for a personal intro and to ask questions about the Render platform. Again, that's render.com slash compare or email changelog at render.com. So I remember Docker coming out 13, 14, around, let's say, 2014. So that's what, seven years now. Mm. And seven years ago, Docker fascinated me. I thought Mm. it was like amazing. Like, Mm -hmm. you mean what? Finally, containers that make sense. I mean, LXC has been around for a long time. So I know that Google contributed to the Linux kernel and they were using it for a long, long time. And I also know that Heroku was fairly big and was very successful in that context. But the regular developer that was just, you know, coding some software and and shipping it, they didn't really use containers until Docker came about. And I was fascinated by it. I thought that was amazing. So in 2014, at the time, I was a lead engineer for the startup called How Are You? And 
I was into Chef at the time. I was using Jenkins heavily. And I blogged about using Jenkins with Docker for continuous deployment. Again, this was 2014. And in that context, there was a meetup in London. Was it the London Ruby user group? It definitely wasn't Ruby because I would not have, <laughs> I would not have gone to Ruby conference at that time. Right. It wasn't a conference. It was like a meetup. It was more like a meetup. Yeah. Yeah, meetup. I think it was like a DevOps. Maybe it was a DevOps thing. Or... Yeah. I know Container Camp or whatever the Docker equivalent was at the time, Container Days, something like that. I can't remember. It was a long time ago. And in that context, I know that we met and you're like, hey, Gerhard, I've, I think you've read something or I know we've been like on the same GitHub issue or I can't exactly remember how, but we realized that we have quite a few things in common. I was into shell scripting into the, t- in the time, big time at the time, and you loved your shell scripts. Even now you love your shell scripts. I do too. Let's be honest about it. <laughs> you know, you can't hide it. And uh, we were both fascinated by Docker at the time. I was more like, I think I was more like as an end user and you were more like in terms of what this means and what does it represent for like the wider sector, I believe, for the tech sector, because you had like a more enterprisey experience at the time. Is that right, Ian? It's very different from my memory, Gerhard. That's exactly what I thought. That's exactly (laughs) what I thought. Like what I remember is very different from what you, so what do you remember, Ian? Okay. Here's how I remember it. Okay. And it just shows how fallible memory is. It's a good reminder. So I remember giving a talk. So I was working at a company called OpenBet. Mm-hmm. And we did uh, back-end systems for online gambling companies around the world. And so it was like big, monolithic, old-school, three-tier system. Mm-hmm. And I'd heard about Docker. I read something in Wired and I clicked through and I was like, and I got something going in like 20 minutes. And I was like, this is amazing. And I'd not actually heard of LXC before that. So I went to my colleague at work, the resident egghead genius guy, and I said, um, do you know anything about this Docker thing? And he said, no. And I showed him and he was like, oh, right. I've been doing that for years <laughs> with LXC and stuff. Like he had his own containers set up with different setups on his host. And I was like, do you realize how transformative this would be for engineers, how much time this would save us? So I did a little Skunk Works project um, deliberately went skunk works because previous attempts to go the official route had not worked. I mm. did something before with Erlang. So yeah, went the skunk works route with a couple of really bright young engineers. And we got like the whole 15 year old monolith packed into a single container, which was, it was considered not the right way to do things, mm. but we did that. And then we had it built daily. And so engineers could just pull the new layer for that day to their machine, whether they were in London or whether they were in Far East or wherever around the world, Australia, and they would have a working environment that was suitable for development with all the applications on it. There's like 50, 60 different applications. It would have a complete database with realistic data on. And so engineers who'd spend like weeks setting up their machines suddenly could just, you know, get going from day one and they had a completely safe environment. They could trash it. They could commit it. I thought Docker commit was a wonderful thing. And I was ashamed it's kind of disappeared from view, but you used to be able to just make changes, commit, make another change, commit. And I was like, this is like save game. The game is to make the, the, the feature work. I miss that completely. That's crazy. I miss that feature. I didn't even know it had it. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so you can, on. This is really interesting. God, I'm finding new things out from seven years ago, which I completely missed. Like you could run your environment 
and then you could like i don't know run a cron job that did some etl process and then you could go like okay docker commit now let's do docker diff oh these files changed why did those files change you know it's like another debugging tool hmm. it had so many things like this which were just mind-blowing and you know we tried to use vms but there's Pre-sales guys, you know, pre-sales guys love you using VMs. Or mm-hmm. you'd think would love using VMs because it's like, oh, you want to see this setup, right? Here's the VM for this. They'd given up because they were like, it's more hassle than it's worth. I just set up a machine, have a bunch of scripts. And I was like, well, like just take those scripts, mm-hmm. stick them in a container, and then we've got something that people can work on. And it's like it makes them super productive. So how we met, to get back to the point, was okay. I started talking about this in public and I was terrified of talking in public mm-hmm. and I can't remember this is where my memory goes hazy but I it may have been the first talk I ever gave and I was super nervous and I practiced loads at home and I got up and I said like look you know we're a, we don't do CICD properly we're, we're old school like da, 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 da. Um, but we do this docker thing and I found it to be transformative and anyway it was like it was a really kind of raw kind of honest uh, like we're messed up. Here's how I'm trying to fix it kind of thing. And people really responded well to this. They were laughing along with me and like, it was, it was fantastic. It felt, felt so free because suddenly like, Oh, I'm not just getting shouted at as like wasting your time because you all know this already. It was like, Oh, you're all, you all want to hear this. And so loads of people came up to me afterwards and said, that was great. It was great to hear the real stuff. And you came up and said, I was going to leave because it was, it felt like these were all sales talks. And then you get up and talk some real engineering. That's wonderful. And we we exchanged emails, and and um, and I, that's how I remember us meeting. That that does bring some memories. But I do have to say, maybe the day that day was so bad that I like I mostly forgot about it, because you're right. We did exchange emails, and then nothing happened for a long time. And then we met again. I say, hey, Ian, I knew, and at the time, I think you were working for Barclays when we met the second time. And that was like, I think, years apart. And you're like in this like enterprise IT, right, for, for a bank. I mean, Barclays is, is a huge bank in the UK and I think even in the world. And you're working in, in, in the context of that IT department and you're working with containers and you're like still on Docker. And I think that you were, either you have only just published the Docker in practice, the first book, or were very close to publishing it. Do you, know, do you remember whether you've already published it at the time? I think I joined. So what the chronology was, I had found out that with this Docker stuff, we did surveys among the engineers who were using it. And one team had adopted it completely. And we found that we saved self-reported. We saved four man days a month per engineer. And I thought it was actually more because they didn't want to say like, we were wasting our time before, but now we've, we've cut a load of time out. But basically a week mm-hmm of a month of developer time is taking out. And I was like, great, I have this evidence now. I have the story. I'm going to go to the board and ask for funding. So I said, like, I want to talk to the board. I've been there 14 years. And they said, yeah, we can, uh, we can fit you in in six months. And at the same time, someone from Barclays was saying, like, we need a Docker expert. Come, come work for us. And I said, no, I never want to work for a bank. And this went on for a while. And I got tricked into a couple of interviews without knowing it. <laughs> and in the end, I, I went because the team there was so impressive and I was scared by them. And I was like, I haven't felt this scared for a long time. So I'm going to join you because you so scared gonna, me. You, they scared, <laughs> the they opposite scared thing me. happens <laughs> when you get yeah. scared. You, you run away. <laughs> Not yeah. you. You run yeah. towards the danger. <laughs> 
Well, okay. I mean, this, this is actually a philosophical point. Like I often say to people like you should feel uncomfortable at work about 30% of the time. Not 30%. More than that. A third. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Not more than that. But if you're feeling uncomfortable 3% of the time, it's not, you're not being, you're not moving enough. When you mean uncomfortable, do you mean like out of your depth, like you don't know enough or what type of uncomfortable do you, do you mean? Well, it's never good to feel out of your depths, right? So when I say uncomfortable, I mean, it's kind of related to another piece of advice that, that I liked many years ago, which was if you have a choice between doing two things at work and one of them makes you feel slightly uncomfortable, do the slightly uncomfortable thing mm. because you're smelling the, the, the opportunity for development. Now, of course, it's, it's terrible to be stressed. We've all been there. We've been at 3 a.m. and shouted at by a customer or something. It's not fun. And this is not a way to live. But generally, you should be feeling like I'm pushing myself. Mm. I'm at my limit somehow, or I, I'm, I'm stretching slightly. I think it's the feeling of being stretched. I see. I think I would call it challenged. Like you should feel like you're challenged. You're learning something. It, you maybe don't know. You don't have all the answers, and you'll fig you're figuring things out because that's growth. Failing. That's great, right? Keep failing because those things you don't know, and that's how you learn, and that's how you grow. So. I think challenged is how I would put it. I think that's a better word. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So 30%, like a third of your time, you should feel challenged so that you're learning, so that you're not being static, stagnating um, and feeling like, well, what's the point? You know, nothing's happening. I'm not going anywhere. I'm stuck. Yeah. So, so in this 14 year company that I worked for, it was a very narrow domain and everyone there was an expert in that domain. Mm -hmm. And it was a very challenging environment. Like people were really into it and you had to kind of work, but you were working in this narrow domain. And so I went to talk to these people at, at Barclays and they were part of the infrastructure team. So it wasn't only that they were working for Barclays, which is, as you say, a huge organization, but they were in the belly of the beast. They were trying to produce the stuff that the rest of the business would use. And one of the, one of the things that um, when I'm explaining how, how enterprises are tough, I try to explain that if you're in an engineering team in a big company that has a lot of process and a lot of oversight regulation, mm -hmm. a small team gets a, can get away with a lot if they want to go, go around the side because it's like, oh, it's one app. It doesn't really affect the whole business. Like there are risks. We need to mitigate those risks. But as long as we have looked at it and yeah, yeah you can have that. You can get away with this and get away with that. But if you're working in infrastructure, it's like you're delivering stuff to the whole business and the whole business is going to use it. So we were working on, at the time, at the beginning, we were working on OpenShift version two, which was pre-Docker. That was rolled out to the whole business. And so any, any team could use it. And so the, the rigor and demand on like security and audit and control was enormous. And, you know, it was very little about technology. I mean, the, the choice was made, the product was chosen and used pretty much out of the box. But everything else around it, the architecture had to be be a certain way and be built a certain way. We had to figure out workarounds for certain problems. These things were, were really hard and I'd never experienced them before. And so one of the things that was really attractive was like I'd worked in unregulated, you know, we had we had root on production everywhere and mm -hmm. these huge databases with with you know millions and millions going through them every hour to a place where everything is really tightly locked down. And I was like, I've never worked in that environment. I've never worked in infrastructure. I've never worked in banking. Like worst case scenario, it, like, I'll get six months banking experience, right? Which, which is probably valuable somehow, somewhere else. 
So even if I go in and they think I suck, at least uh, take away something from, from the experience. So I stayed there for three and a half years. You went from the initial Docker experience and the Docker in practice book. Uh, I was talking that the second time we met, you were working for Barclays and you, I think you have just almost maybe just finished writing the book or it was just published. It was around that time. This was yeah. the first edition. You wrote a second edition as well since. So there's this, mm-hmm. I think, I don't think you wrote another book, but you did write some courses. Is that right? Or like self-published books? Because you then, like the hard way, you had Git the hard way, Bash the hard way, Terraform the hard way. Were they self-published book or courses? What were they? Okay. So yeah, the book was, was published when I was at Barclays and that was a very long process. And then when the book came out, it sold very well. And so they said, like, we want a second edition. I thought naively that the second edition would be like, mm-hmm. you know, add a chapter here, take a chapter out there, revise some stuff, fix some stuff, and we're done. And it's not going to be much work. But actually, they treat it like a whole new book. So you kind of, you don't literally start from scratch. Of course, you take, take the original book. But they go through each one, and you have to kind of work through each, each part. So it was much more arduous than I thought. The self-published books came about because, well, I, I can't actually remember the chronology. I think I did the Git one first. So I was working in Barclays infrastructure and there were all these super smart people around me, but they were very infrastructure focused. They were not from a dev background and they were doing these projects with Terraform in the cloud. So th- mm-hmm. they were actually trying to um, create accounts per team that were automatically provisioned and had all the controls that were needed and so on, but was still AWS native. So it wasn't like a wrapper around AWS. It was a, a, a kind of template for building our accounts. And anyway, long story short, they came to me one day and said, oh, Ian, you know about Git. Can you help us with, like, we're trying to find out where this change came from. I was like, oh, great. Just send me the, just send me the um, reference to the repo. I'll download the repo and I'll, I'll figure it out. So I downloaded the repo, did git log minus minus graph, my usual trick, right? Mm-hmm. And I got a page of pipes. And I was like, okay, what's going on here? And I said, like, how does this structure? And they were like, well, we have 12 teams working uh, on this product. And each team has about seven people. And each team has its own branch. And then they have features off those branches. And I was like, okay, do you rebase? And they were like, what are you talking about? I said, like, no, no, we merge. And I was like, okay, so like... This is why I'm seeing a whole bunch of pipes because there's so many branches and they're all merged in. Therefore, there's no sort of single line of, of change. Mm-hmm. And so I, I tried to explain what, what rebasing exists. And of course, I got to the deeper points about Git. And I realized, oh, to get there, I need to explain all this other stuff. And so I created a course for people at Barclays who like were using Git but wanted to understand it more deeply. And I'd read learn Ruby the hard way because I was doing Chef at the time. Mm-hmm. And I'd read a couple of other of uh, the books by Zed Shaw, mm-hmm. who kind of popularized the hard way method. I wrote to Zed and I said, you know, is this your trademark copyright? Like, would you be pissed off? Uh, would you be upset if I use this in my, my books? And he said, no, uh, it's fine. Uh, I can't trademark it. It's actually an older idea that I took. So I was like, cool, I can I can use it well, I've got this course, I can turn it into a book. So I did that. And the book was pretty well received. And then I thought, you know what, I don't know Bash as well as I like. And there's so many things about Bash where I'd like to use the hard way method to I kind of understand how it works. And so I wrote one on Bash, and that was really uh, popular, that sold really well. And then I was learning Terraform, and I thought, right, this is how I learn stuff now. 
I pick up a technology, I use it, and then I'm like, I really want to understand it more, well, more thoroughly. Writing a book is, is the way to do that. Certainly that's what happened with Docker. Like I felt like a completed poster. They were asking me to write this book because I'd been giving talks and someone had recommended me. And there I was writing this book thinking like, mm-hmm. surely someone surely someone proper should be writing this book, not me. Uh, but I got away with it. And I thought, well, let's, let's keep this going. But of course, self-publishing is easier in the sense that you have more control. Mm-hmm. Um, no one is telling you how to write it. No one is telling you, you need more of this, that and the other. And you can kind of follow your vision more more closely. If you were to write a book today, would you go via a publisher or would you self-publish? It would very much depend. I really enjoy the self-publishing because, well, two reasons. One is pretty selfish. Like I, I take 80% of the, of the money. <laughs> but more seriously, you don't write books to become rich. You write books because they develop you. And it would depend in which way it would develop me. So... My interests now are moving up the stack towards mm-hmm. management and 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 consulting and and so if if you know Wiley came to me and said, "Would you like to write a book on on money flows and tech in organizations then i would I would be up for that because it's Wiley and that would increase my credibility something the editor told me when when I started writing docker in practice because I said like no one no one writes books for the money right and he said, "Well, you can make some money but what you'll find is that it puts you in a different category in the industry. And that was very true, that suddenly doors were opening to me, not because I knew more about, about something than other people I knew, but simply because I'd, I'd written a book. And I, I always say to people, if someone tells me now I've written a book on X, I don't think, wow, they must know so much about X. I think, wow, they must be really organized <laughs> because the hard bit of writing a book, once you get, get past the basic knowledge you need to write it, is having the level of organization to hold down a job and do it. I can see that. It is a discipline, you're right. It is the commitment. It is seeing it through, shipping it, right? Because it's very different. I mean, maybe if you self-publish, you can do chapters at a time and then the book grows. With a publisher, it's a little bit different. So you're right, it's a bit more structured. It's a bit more demanding, maybe. And you have to make that stuff work besides your job. I mean, okay, maybe your employer's understanding in, in, in a way, but... It doesn't mean that you can stop working and just focus on your book, that it doesn't work like that. And still, you manage to write a published book. Well, two, because the second edition, it's not the same book, as you pointed out. And you also self-publish three books. And also you have the course. I think that we'll, we'll add the link in the show notes. But if you're curious and if you want to contribute to Ian's future self-publishing books, check them out. Because I think contributing directly to the authors it's a great way of showing appreciation showing that yeah that's i like that i you know it's 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 a, it's a great content thank you for it so yeah that really helps This episode is brought to you by Linode. Gone are the days when Amazon Web Services was the only cloud provider in town. Linode stands tall to offer cloud computing developers trust, easily deploy cloud compute, storage, and networking in seconds with a full-featured API, CLI, and cloud manager with a user-friendly interface. Whether you're working on a personal project or managing your enterprise's infrastructure, Linode has the pricing, scale, and support you need to launch and scale in the cloud. 
Get started with $100 in free credit at linode.com slash changelog. Again, linode.com slash changelog. So I'd like us to start going a bit up the stack, as you mentioned. So we talked Git, we talked Bash, we talked history, you know, how it all began. Very different recollections of of that. I, I remember that I started giving you some feedback on the Bash the hard way, but I don't think I finished, like maybe like 10 pages or something like that. And I got very busy and I, I never finished that review properly. So sorry about that. It was not intentional. I don't was, remember, but yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I still remember that. But when you mentioned Bash, said, oh, I should have given you some feedback five years ago or three years ago, however long it was. And uh, yeah, I did, I, I did like part of it, but then I had to stop. So the title of the show, of this episode, the title of this episode is Follow the Money. And the reason why, it's, why it is what it is, is because... You told me that this is something that you have on your mind quite quite a lot. You mentioned very briefly money flows. So first of all, I'm curious, what money are you talking about? Is it the proverbial money? Is it the actual money? Uh, who should follow it and why? Sure. Yeah. So I was aware that when when we called this follow the money, that it would sound like I was saying, hey, you should you should get all the money, m- money you can as an engineer. That's very much not what I'm saying. Especially when I mentioned that I work for banks, it really sounds like uh, I was money grabbing. Mm-hmm. So I want to make that clear from the outset. What I'm talking about with follow the money is that, so as I mentioned, I worked in a very narrow domain and the economic model of it was really simple. So simple, it was invisible to me. So customer wanted thing. Customer had platform, customer paid licenses, customer wanted thing, customer had time and materials, and customer paid for ongoing support and maintenance. And that was the model. I didn't think about this too much as a significant thing, but then we tried to convert to being a product company and failed. There were all sorts of reasons we can argue about why why that failed, but I took that experience. I had my ideas about we used the wrong technologies or we had the wrong culture or whatever. I took that experience and then I went to to Barclays. And I found that there it was less, far less about the technology and far more about the organizational. And so I became less interested in technology because there are better and worse technologies for any given situation. But but really what causes success or failure in these organizations is the structure of the organization and so on. There is a common meme in when we talk about DevOps and we talk about software engineering development, that when you're young, you think about tools. You know, should I use Go or should I use Java or should I use Ruby or should I use whatever? And people really focus on that. And the, the, the wise old person says, hey, no, no, it's not about that. It's about team organization and agility and so on. And, and so you get to thinking about these things. And then the slightly older person says, no, no, it's about culture. And then I find the conversation just stops. Like people just say it's culture and you go, okay, it's culture. Now what? Like, how do I change a culture? And this got me thinking that, you know, I was one of those humanities students. I I came to to software when I was 25 when I wanted a a different kind of career. And as a humanities student, I studied modern history. And I obviously read about Marxian ideas. And one of Marx's ideas was the material base, the kind of structure of material exchange and and capitalism and so on, ultimately determine the superstructure, which is culture. 
And this is kind of where my mind's been going recently because I've been involved in various projects where we're looking at why things are struggling to happen. And we uncover that the business thinks of things in a completely different way to the engineers. So the engineers think of a platform as this kind of continuously engineered product and it needs constant investment. And this investment is repaid over time. And the more you build it and the more you automate, the more you get this investment over time. But some organizations are still in this very transactional, I pay for something and then I have a thing and then that's it. And so getting them to think in this kind of continuous investment way and selling something that isn't just, you know, oh, we, we had 10 engineers working for a month and therefore it costs X. We have this thing that is of value to you and this is of this much value and we have to invest in it to maintain it. This kind of way of thinking comes ultimately from the way the companies run their accounts is my hypothesis. And that in order to really debug an organization and why it's struggling to move to cloud native or DevOps or whatever, you ultimately end up back with accounts. So I saw this at, at, at um, in banks to some extent, because we were building a platform that was consumed by the rest of the business. So it was like a product, but there was actually no way for us to be paid internally for that. So we had, I don't know how many teams, many, many teams using this platform, but the ones who were using it more than others weren't necessarily paying more. It was very opaque. Like we couldn't actually get to the bottom of how the money was moving around. And actually the whole business was structured around yearly review cycles, yearly accounting cycles. You couldn't say like, oh, we have a new version of, of this product and we need to invest in improving. It's like, well, that wasn't in the original budget for the year. And so you, you can't be agile when you have to think in yearly cycles. You just think, right, what are we going to do this year? Uh, we need to get the budget for this year. It doesn't work where like every three months, the number of people on our, on our platform was doubling, but we had no, no more budget to support that. So we had to borrow, beg and steal money from other bits. These are all the kind of questions that made me think, oh, you know, you know what's at the bottom of this is how money moves around an organization and why money moves around an organization. And if you can sort that out, or at least get that aligned with the way you want to work, then suddenly things can move much faster. So organizations that are built from the ground up as microservices typically have a different cost structure. So they, they allocate money to teams. They're responsible for, for, for products. I spoke to my CFO where I work at Container Solutions, and he said, yeah, there's this whole thing called agile accounting, and he was a big fan of it. He turned me on to a couple of books on the subject and tries to overthrow this yearly cycle in favor of continuous accounting. And so it sounds familiar to us, right? Continuous accounting, continuous software. So it's kind of like there must be a Conway's Law type thing here, which says that the organizational structure determines the tools and technologies you use. But what determines the organizational structure? Well, one way to look at it is the financial structure. How does money move around? And so you get this thing of like, oh, we're just always going back to money. So this is why I say follow the money, because if everything's working fine, you're getting the resources you need to do your job properly, then it's invisible. You don't care. But when things are going wrong, it's like, well, I'm debugging. And we did a five whys exercise at the customer recently. And it was like, well, why, why can't you allocate someone full time to this platform? And they said, well, we can't do that because they get pulled away. But why do they get pulled away? Well, because we have other projects. Why do you have other projects? Like why? And it kind of went around in circles. And then eventually we got to, ah, because you're a time and materials company and you think of things in terms of 
built, finished, done. And not in terms of, oh, this needs to be continuously maintained. So they said like the senior management are saying, the platform is finished. Why are we still talking about it? It's like, no, no, that's the wrong way to think about it. It's like, well, it's in the accounts as a thing and now it's depreciating, but we, we finished it, it's built. And so like once we got back to that, someone else pointed out, someone very experienced pointed out in the call that accountants are, are used, very used to the idea of investment. If you buy a warehouse, they understand that you buy the warehouse, you have to maintain the warehouse. Amazon don't just buy a warehouse and then think it's done. They buy a warehouse, big expense, and then they say, right, there's going to be some ongoing expense here as we need cleaners, we need janitors, we need security, da, 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 da. or we need to like rebuild part of it because the products we store in them has changed or something. This is all not new to accountants. They understand it, but we don't talk to them. We're scared of, as engineers, I mean, maybe I speak for myself, but we're kind of like, it's a bit like when people talk to us, like they suddenly get these jargon words and we're like, we have no idea what you're talking about. It's like that for us when we go to accountants, they start talking about you know tax deductions and, and things we're not that interested in necessarily. And it's very technical. But if you get someone who, who wants to work with you, it can be completely eye-opening. You know, I remember learning about the difference between CapEx and OpEx. And I was like, suddenly it makes sense to me why the cloud has taken off because it's like it can be treated differently from a tax point of view and a spending point of view. Suddenly, suddenly cloud makes a lot more sense. So... I haven't formed this into a coherent theory yet. It's just some thoughts that are flying around in my head, but it's something that I'm super interested in exploring more. I find that really fascinating in that you're right. We we rarely think about that. Maybe if you're a self-bootstrap business and you have a product that you're working on, maybe the relationship is very clear between what you're investing your time in and the return on that investment. Are you doing the right thing? And if you are, then, you know, the money is going up and the income is going up and you have more money to work with, which means that you can spend more time on the things that maybe generate that money or other more important things. But the whole point is like, just keep the money flowing, keep the money not necessarily coming in because it has to go out as well, right? You're not hoarding money. You use money to make more money. That's the way it works or it should work. It's interesting of thinking it in terms of money flows and continuous money flows. I think when you start doing a budget, even like your personal budget, you know, like, okay, you're saving money, but don't focus on the pot, focus on what's incoming and what's outgoing. And as a result of that, you will build the pot, right? That's that's just how it works or different types of pots. So that makes sense. So as I mentioned, self-bootstrap business, I think it's very clear. Maybe a medium-sized business, maybe it starts getting a bit more opaque, 100 people, 200 people. But once you get to like tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands of people, this is completely opaque, right? You don't even actually, and I know that some companies, you can't even know how much money you're making. It's just not allowed beyond a certain level. I'm sure there's a very good reason for it, right? Especially if there's like an IPO company, like a publicly traded company, things are even more complicated. So... This is very interesting, but again, I, I, I fail to see how this would make, I mean, smaller company, yes, bigger company, it's just impossible. So would you use some sort of proxies? Let's imagine that you're part of a big company and let's imagine that you're working on a product, which, you know, is sold for licenses, as you mentioned, you buy the thing and you use the thing, and then you renew your license every, every year. Let's imagine that the team that is working on the product cannot know the cost that 
those licenses generate, regardless of the reason? What do they do? Well, yes, this opaqueness is absolutely part of the problem, right? So I think what I was talking about earlier was more like structural stuff. But if you're mm-hmm. talking from the point of view of an engineer, like when I was working for large, very large organizations, I had the mm-hmm. same question, like, how can we measure what we're, the value we're generating for the business and then justify more revenue as a result? And it got really political and complicated because the best measure we came up with was number of teams in production mm-hmm. or using the platform. And there were different measures, production, testing, mm-hmm. dev, whatever. And we took those numbers, but it, we didn't even really know where to take them because, as I say, we had these yearly budget cycles, which were way up the chain beyond what we could understand. We had no idea if this information was going up to that part. So even that structure wasn't set up for people to think about things in terms of, well, I'm delivering this value to the business and therefore I need, you know, I can justify this funding for future growth. It just hadn't been joined up. When you're a company of a certain size and, and you know, being opaque is, is fine. Most people don't have the time or energy or inclination to think about these things. When those companies then want to change, they just say to themselves, oh, we'll just be agile now. We'll put some posters up and we'll have some courses and we'll use a few words, new few words to, to describe some old things. And we're, hey, we're agile now. And my feedback to companies who are trying to do that is always, you have to think deeper than that. And usually we stop at culture, but I'm starting to think like that's not enough because like I said, okay, our culture is broken. Now what do we do? Like you can't just magic up a culture. It's very vague. In fact, I wrote a blog piece called Five Things I Did to Change an IT Team's Culture. Mm-hmm. I was given the task of managing an IT team where the director had left. I did five specific things to change the team's culture. And, you know, from firing someone to getting my hands dirty on the floor and, and looking at the pipes of work that were coming in. Because I wanted to say, like, you can't just say culture is the problem and then walk away and say, here's my invoice. Culture is the problem. You've got to actually suggest something. And so at the time, the things I was suggesting were, you know, tough things like firing people and, and getting your hands dirty on the floor to see what's happening. Like in, in the goal, the, the, the book we were talking about before the podcast, one of the key things in that part was, uh, in that book, was that the, the manager never actually went to the floor until he had to. And so he had all these reports about the machines in the factory and then he went on the floor and he's like, hang on a sec, that doesn't really match the reality on the floor is that we have these two machines which are sitting idle. Why are they sitting idle? Oh, because we told us we, we should use the new machines which are less productive. Like, no, switch the old machines on. Like, We need to deliver. Going to the floor is, is, is a huge thing. That's, that's a practical thing you can do. But another practical thing that I'm thinking about now is this, is this whole money flows thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's not an easy sell because, you know, why is this guy who knows about Kubernetes suddenly telling me about CapEx and OpEx and money flows is not what I, what I hired them for. So you kind of have to be patient, but eventually you get there with them and they can start to see that this is this is a problem potentially. But I think it's a very underexplored area and I'm, I'm super interested. The more conversations I have with different people, the more I realize that it is this holistic approach that people are not taking. They are comfortable talking about being uncomfortable in their own little area, in their own little narrow area, whether it's coding, whether it's operations, whether it's whatever it may be. And they don't have the energy, don't have the interest, don't have the time to step out of that narrow area and get uncomfortable. 
but maybe the real opportunity is outside of your comfort area, is when you start thinking, how does the money flow in the business? And how does my work impact the money flow? How does my work and my approach impact culture? Am I being, I know, a bad person? I'm not sure I wanted to say, am I being a jerk? But I don't know whether that's politically correct. I don't know what the politically correct term is, but am I being a, a difficult person about this? And could I be doing more? And am I doing the right thing? Am I even doing the right thing? And maybe we look up to our managers and our leaders and expect them to have all the answers, but it's a collective thing. It's a team effort. Yeah. You have to come together and different people bring different experiences. And I read like, you're right. I think this is a very underexplored area. We don't know the relationship that exists in different companies between money flows and the value that we create and the value that we contribute. Maybe you'd like to work more efficiently, but what does it mean? It's not more lines of code. It's not deleting even lines of code. It's not that. It's something else. It's mentoring, being kind, sure, to some extent, yes, but there's more to it. So what is what is this more? So one of the things that I now advise every team that's moving towards CICD is not Jenkins over this or Mm-hmm. Or, or whatever tool that you, you think I say like first measure how expensive it is to, to make a change on your system so you, you want to change let's take the CSS change to the to your site one hex value changes right how long does that take to go through the pipe as it stands and you, you get answers of like well it takes three weeks because QA have to check it and uh, we have to get a project manager we have to get this done da 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 and it's like, okay, so that can take three weeks. So you have a number, you know, some, you end up with some number, like one small change, one trivial change costs the company X. So now we do CID, we do GitOps or CICD or arguably they're the same thing. And we then measure the cost of the change now. So now you've automated your tests. Now you've done this. Oh, you may still have a legacy QA process that makes everyone feel happy, but it's shorter because... Mm stuff is tested we have fewer errors that means things go back around the cycle we have fewer bugs resulting that's the other thing is like how much do businesses track the cost of maintenance of their products how much is that related to actually something's just occurred to me which is that when i worked for that company before i worked in third line support and we were well funded i mean we felt super busy we were super busy and stressed but if we needed more money we could go ask for it because customers paid for support. So there was a straight line between, you know, and they paid well for it because they cared about it. So they would give us lots of money for support. And then we had, was pulled up into one bunch of money. And then we had a team that serviced all these customers composed of former engineers, well, of engineers and team leads, tech leads together, you know, fixing stuff in real time. Whereas other companies, they don't have that money flow. They don't like have the same thing. So they ignore maintenance and kind of, beg, borrow, and steal energy from engineers to fix stuff while keeping them busy with other stuff, but they just pretend it's not there. And so if you can get measurements on these things, then you can start to draw graphs of like, okay, we spend X amount on on the platform. Platforms are very front-loaded. You have to spend a lot of money before you get any kind of return, but the return should be felt over time. This is not a new idea in business. It's a very old idea, but you can end up with a graph which says, okay, so we've spent a million pounds building the platform 
which is done now in the old way of thinking of it. Whereas before it cost £10,000 to make a single change. Now it costs like £1,000. So we've cut that thing in 10. And so we used to do 10 releases a year. Now we can do 100. And so that's the financial kind of metric, right? So what's the non-financial metric? Well, you can do, we can do even more. We can actually, uh, we have fewer bugs. We have easier rollbacks. We don't have big meetings with lots of project managers in them and tech leads discussing the huge amount of changes that are going in once every every month. All these things can make a very good case for give us more funding and we can make it better. You also have to link to sales. Sales is a pipe of money, right? And if sales think of things in terms of transactional, they pay for something and this is done. That's incorrect. So we, you know, with, with one organization, we ended up discussing like we should have invisible line items uh, on on sales to say like, well, they're actually paying behind the scenes. They're paying for this product, but they don't know it. Or you put it on there and say, they say, what the hell is that? And you go, oh, no, don't worry. We'll take it. Off. We'll scrub it off for you. But actually you, you account for it internally. Mm-hmm. And by doing that, you can say, okay, we're bringing X amount of money in. Therefore, we can have our own team. Therefore, we can have focus. Therefore, we can maybe hire more people who are more focused on this new way of doing things. Mm-hmm. And you potentially build up this virtuous circle. But if you don't think about these things when you're starting the process, then it can flounder as you encounter them later. That's a pattern I've seen in, in businesses, all the businesses I've worked in, that want to change the way they work. You start by thinking about the tools and then you end up dealing with stuff that you didn't even think about, like how a salesman thinks about, about what they're selling and how they, you know, their salesmen are super smart at like hiding costs and, and changing invoices to, to make it make the customer happy. But it's actually the same amount of money. These, these things are, you know, they turn out to be super interesting if you get involved with them, but it's, it's not where you start as an engineer. You start over there. I'm sure actually CFOs go through the same journey, right? Because a lot of accountants become CEOs and they start thinking of things in terms of nice clean spreadsheets and then they go and become a CEO and suddenly they're axing a whole team because they think, well, they look at the spreadsheet and it's, I can get rid of this number. And, but they find there's all sorts of secondary effects they hadn't thought about because they can, don't come from the background. We have the same problem. We think of things in terms of technology and process and, and we like system design and thinking of things in terms of that, but we don't think about, we don't want to think about the money. It's kind of annoying. I have to go and talk to someone about getting, they should just give me the money I need to get the job done. Like, why is this? But that's the reality of, of what we do. It's, it's all connected. Yeah, it's holistic. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Cockroach Labs, the makers of CockroachDB, the most highly evolved database on the planet. With CockroachDB, you can scale fast, survive anything, and thrive everywhere. It's open source, Postgres wire compatible, and Kubernetes friendly, which means you can launch and run it anywhere. For those who need more, you can build and scale fast with Cockroach Cloud, which is CockroachDB hosted as a service. It's the simplest way to deploy CockroachDB and is available instantly on AWS and Google Cloud. With Cockroach Cloud, a team of world-class SREs maintains and manages your database infrastructure so you can focus less on ops and more on code. Get started for free with a 30-day free trial or try their new forever free tier that's super generous. Head to cockroachlabs.com slash changelog to learn more. Again, cockroachlabs.com slash changelog. 
So we were talking about money flows. We were talking about the cost of change, which is something that really stuck with me. We were talking about the holistic approach to developing and shipping code, shipping value. It's not just code, it's a value. And I think if you start thinking about things in those terms, the work that you do will be more valuable because that's the way you approach it. Uh, it's not about lines of code. It's not about changes. It's about what you contribute to the world. Maybe the world is a bit too grandiose for some, to your users, right? Whether it's five, whether it's 5,000, 50,000, doesn't really matter. Users will benefit from what you do. So with that in mind, what would you say that is the biggest mistake in your experience that you've seen developers make? Because you've been around the block a couple of times now. You've seen small orgs, big orgs, banks, startups, everything in between. What is, is there like, maybe maybe there's multiple mistakes that you see developers make or software engineers? Well, I th- Anything that stands out? Yeah, I, th- I think it's related to what we're talking about. It's, it's the lack of holistic thinking. Which is completely natural because if you're a specialist and you're young, you will have focused very tightly on your domain of knowledge and worked hard to improve that. And we've all been there. Where I see them, and I I made this mistake, of course, I think every engineer makes this mistake as they're younger. So it's not, I'm not saying like I, I was somehow special. But as you get older, as I get older, I think more holistically about it. So what I find is that is that engineers think, oh, I to take an example, I had a lot of engineers phoning me when I was working at, at Barclays because I was named as the owner of Docker as a technology. So each technology and company like Barclays has an owner and they're responsible for the life cycle of that of that technology within the organization. And so people were phoning me up and saying, I want to use Docker. And I would have to explain to them I can't just install it on your machine. There are these following blocks. And some of them were interested, but most of them were just kind of impatient. Like, can't you just give me what I want? And what I found was that those people that that thought about it more were more successful because they would say, okay, so you need X, Y, Z to do it, right? Is there a way I can talk to my manager or talk to their manager or something to kind of get the money moving around so you can get what you need or can I second myself to your team and actually do the work with you to get it get it done so that's kind of a microcosm that's kind of a single anecdote but generally I see engineers just thinking about things in terms of the technology and I made yeah here's a perfect example I made that mistake when I tried to do Erlang in a business and I thought Erlang is a perfect fit for some of our problems it's a functional programming language it's uh, message passing it's actor based this will have all sorts of benefits for us. And I just went full speed ahead with that. And then when I came to actually trying to roll it out, I found that we found that engineers used to see syntax really struggled with Erlang to the point where they were just writing things in misguided ways because they just didn't, didn't grok the way things should be built. It's a bit like cloud native. Like you have to think in a different way to build in it. And that doesn't just happen overnight. People still use their old tools, mental tools to apply to them. And so this is the initiative floundered. So this is a mistake I most often see is, is failing to see, and it, it's not a um, criticism of them, of these, of these people, but if they fa- fail to respond to that challenge, that's the mistake I think that they make because you've got to learn these, these rules of, of business somehow. Yeah, or you can just stick in your domain and, and work away at it. But usually you get to the point where you're frustrated by something or you can see how something can be done better and you want to kind of go and make that change. And at that point, 
you need to start thinking more more widely. I think it is valuable to stay focused. And especially if you're passionate about something and, you know, you, you feel connected to that thing and you feel like you're making great progress, that is very valuable. And by some call it flow, by all means, do that. And that is important. But be aware there's more to it than that. And if you stay in that mode for too long, your success will mm-hmm. be hampered by the fact that you're staying in that mode. So it's almost like the equivalent of taking your headphones off walking around and talking to people. It's the equivalent of that. But in this case, it's the business. It's maybe the sales department. It's maybe the marketing department. It's all connected. It's accounting. And you can ignore it. Not a problem. Again, there's no right or wrong here. What we're saying is that if you're a bit more aware of what's happening around you, you will be more successful. You'll feel more connected to the business. Yeah. So look around. Stop. It's okay to stop. It's okay to take a break. Because guess what? When you get back into flow, you'll be more efficient. You will be more guided. You will be better connected to everything else. Because it is a team sport. It's not just you. Even when you think it's your company and it's your product and there's no one else, you have your users. So you have to pay Mm -hmm. attention to that. And it's all the things that you're not doing that you should be doing. And that's when a lot of people get stretched and they get out of depth. And, you know, it's like a nice slow progression. It doesn't happen overnight. That's okay. Uh, Be kind to yourself and to others, but it starts with yourself. And open your eyes. The world is a big place. And there are people that want to help. There are people that know what they're talking about. There are people that failed in N ways until they realized there is a better way than just coding and shipping and coding and shipping. There's so much more to it. So you mentioned container solutions a couple of times. I know that there's this very, well, I won't say very popular, but like it's it's a concept which is increasing in popularity. WTF is X. So my question is, first of all, who is container solution and what is WTF is X? Right. So who is container solutions? Container solutions is a consultancy that helps companies move to cloud native. That's typically what we do. But we like to think we have a, a wider perspective than just, just that. What we often do with companies is we don't just go in and say, hey, you should be using Kubernetes or you should be using Docker. Actually, sometimes we say you shouldn't. One, my first assignment actually with, with container solutions or CS, as I call it, with CS was to go to work on an assessment. We do these sort of two-week assessments where we go in and we interview 15 to 20 people within an organization, the key people, for an hour each. We collate the information we've, we've gathered. We synthesize that, and then we analyze that. And then we produce a report of how they should get to where they, where they want to be, or how we think they should get to where they want to be. And one of these companies, they said, we want to use containers. And we said, no, 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 you're thinking about this wrong. Maybe for the new stuff, you use containers, but the old stuff stays where it is because it's it's low risk. It's generating huge piles of cash for you. So just leave it, invest in it, maintain it. But if you try and rebuild everything from scratch, you you incur huge risk. So first learn on the side, maybe learn from those lessons and draw them back in. The reason I joined Container Solutions was because I had a meeting with the owner, a guy called Jamie Dobson. And it was like a 10 minute meeting and he immediately figured out my frustrations with work and told me I can help you enjoy work more. Mm. 
And that is exactly what's happened since I've joined because I now think about problems. I think about the real, I feel like I'm thinking about the real problems. I spent years working in large organizations, seeing projects flounder, and it was nothing to do with tech and it was nothing to do with uh, a lack of will or anything like that. It was simply that the problems weren't being analyzed in the right way. And so what happens is we, we, we often get companies coming to us saying, hey, we want Kubernetes. You can give us Kubernetes, right? How much will it cost to get Kubernetes? And we kind of say, yeah, we know Kubernetes. Like we have engineers, we, we write operators, we do all this stuff, but we don't start there. We start at the higher level and look at you know the way you're approaching this and have you thought about all, all the things that you need to think about. And companies really like that kind of, it builds a lot of trust because we often go in and say things which seem to be not in our interest. Um, we did an assessment recently of one company and we basically told them that they're actually a shining beacon of how the, everything should be done. And maybe we can learn from them actually more than, than them from us. Mm-hmm. And so that was really satisfying because we got, we got to t- tell the truth and not just say like, Hey, we've got this whole model of how you should move, move everything to Kubernetes and have a platform team. And, and that's, you know, this is our blue, blueprint for you. We don't have a blueprint. We have a, an analysis process. So we get to tell the truth. That's a lot of fun. A lot of fun. Obviously, we, we have our expertise in, in tech, and that's where we come in. So we have to demonstrate that. But yeah, that's CS. One of the things that I find very valuable on your GitHub, on the Container Solutions GitHub, is the Kubernetes examples that you have, the Terraform examples. I think you had a lot to do with that. The reason why I want to call these things out is because it is like if you care about the tech, check those repos out. There's a lot of very good examples and very good approaches to something that you would maybe Google for, uh, search for them. There's a lot of good stuff in a single place. So if that's your curiosity, check it out. You will find it super useful. And the other thing which I want to say, like in conclusion to what you're saying, is it really resonates with me helping people in a way that they need not necessarily telling them what they want to hear, telling them the truth, the reality, like, hey, you don't have a problem or you do have a problem or the problem that you think you have, it's not the actual problem. So having this honest approach will always win, even if it's not in your best best interest because what you care about is the customer's best interest. And that is a winning approach in anyone's book, I'm sure. If you care more about the other, company, person, whatever, then you care about your own interests, that's great. And find the alignment. Where do your interests meet with my interests? And if they, there's no union, that's okay. It's not a good combination. Yeah, it is very satisfying. It's more satisfying to work in, a, in an environment like that. You learn a lot more, more quickly because there's no formula. You, don't, you, you can't go into a company with, with a fully... You have, we have, everyone has prejudices and experiences which fly against reality but the interview the 15 hours of interview process is a really good way to get beyond that because you have to actually start thinking about how do these people see it and how is that different from my way of seeing it but you you very quickly develop a mental model of of how different organizations work and that's really a very valuable skill to gain it's something that i've I've really developed over the last year because I've, i've worked with companies that are fully microservice based and then companies where they don't want to use cloud because it's too expensive and they like having their data center. And we actually told them like, keep going, like you, you'll be fine. So the reason we could say that was because we can see 
you understand for example in that case we can see you, you understand the limitations of what you're doing and how you're doing it but you've actually accounted for that you know you're ready for those challenges and they, they, they did actually use cloud for some things where it made sense but they were very resistant to it anyway you get to see all these different ways of thinking mm-hmm. and environments and so you learn to become more flexible in your thinking and it affects everything. Whereas when I worked for the same place for 14 years, I felt very stuck in a very particular line of thinking and way of thinking that has been challenged heavily since. WTF is X. Yes. That's what I'm thinking. Yes. We didn't get back to that. Right. So, so what happened is during the pandemic, we'd been very active in conferences and setting up events and so on. And so the pandemic hit and suddenly what do we do now? Like this is a whole area of business that we have hired people to do. So we flipped and we we started doing some online stuff and we learned some lessons and um, we did a couple of conferences. And and then the marketing team at CS and Jamie came up with this concept of WTF. And it was a really great hook because I think a lot of people in, I mean, we all know in tech that there are all these things coming at you all the time. GitOps, microservices, Docker, Kubernetes, Swarm, you know, just it, they never stop coming and yeah. you kind of you go to a conference and people are talking about it and you're kind of smiling along and sometimes you know what they're talking about and sometimes you think you know what they're talking about and sometimes you have no idea what they're talking about and you don't often go hang on a sec like time out sit down and explain this to me carefully for 20 minutes you don't do that you just kind of go i think i get it from context it's fine and everyone does this in the industry and it's even harder if you don't have a technical background or you maybe you're a buyer or a or a senior leader who is less confident about this stuff. So we thought, wouldn't it be great if we had this sort of banner of WTF so that we could actually say, like, you can come along to these events and we'll try and explain to you what it is. And if you have questions, great, let's hear them and, and maybe we'll discuss it more. So one of them we did was, was WTF GitOps. WTF is GitOps, which I did. And it was like, there was a small technical demo, but it was really just kind of show people who wanted that kind of thing really was about like where does this come from what does it mean if you hear this in a meeting what should what what should you be thinking where can you slot this and i don't think there's enough of that in 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 software you notice i've noticed over the years that the really experienced engineers and the really confident engineers are the ones who always say i don't know what that means tell me what that means and then they, there's a like a five after a very very short five to 20 second discussion between the two people about like, what does that mean? Oh, it's like that. Oh, so it's like that. Yeah. It's like that. Yeah. Okay. Right. So I now have a clear idea what it is. This is what experienced people do. It's, it's that, that old paradox of the more experienced you are, the more comfortable you are saying, I don't know what you're talking about. And like, that's something I had to develop when I worked at, in banking because you're having acronyms thrown at you all the time and you have no idea if it's industry standard, if it's, company standard if you know you have to kind of go okay i don't know what that means please explain to me what that means you have to kind of get over your having been in a domain domain where you knew everything so yeah i love that side of it and we did recently did a conference wtf is sre and we had like many thousands of people attending and it was like a super success and we'd like ah finally i think we've cracked we think we've cracked how to do stuff online now how to do a conference online now but it was a long way to get there and, you know, on the WTFs, I also do a gossip thing. So first 10 minutes, we have, you know, general stuff. And then and then we have a little section where we talk about gossip in the, in the community. And that's that's kind of fun. Um, so it's, it's, it's pretty uh, light. You know, it's not a heavy, serious thing. 
And it's not heavy on demos or tooling. It's much more about like exploring concepts in the industry and what they mean and, you know, learning from the people who come and vice versa. So we often get you know, side discussions going on, on, on the chats, on the Zoom. And they're super interesting because you get stuck in a bubble working in a consultancy. You're completely immersed in Kubernetes and operators and Terraform and, and GitOps. And you think everyone knows this stuff. And of course, people, people don't. They, don't. they either don't care or they, they don't come across it. So it's really important to get your head out of your own space sometimes and, and kind of see things from, from the other point of view, because otherwise you, you end up as a consultant talking jargon to yourself. I really like the approach of, so first of all, I have attended a few of those, even like the WTF is SRE. That was a really good conference. I think the YouTube, uh, the, sorry, the videos are now available on YouTube, so you can go and check them out. There's the container solutions website and everything is linked there. Uh, there's also the YouTube channel, so you can go and check them out. We will add them to the show notes. But my perspective and my, uh, my conclusion was that it's where humans meet tech in a human way no imposters, no high horses. And that is something that Changelog does a lot as well, or at least we try to. Uh, I'm sure everybody fails, let's be honest about it. Uh, but we try to call it how it is. I don't know. Uh, what did you mean? What did you mean, Ian? What money? <laughs> how, like, <laughs> do you mean I should get a better <laughs> job? Is that what you mean? No, obviously that's not what you mean. <laughs> and things change all the time, right? We always improve. So those improvements, how do you share them? How do you improve as a whole, as a group? Because the only successful teams, the really successful teams are the ones that improve as, as a whole. It's not individuals, it's the interactions. Are the interactions better? Are your team members getting better? Is the industry as a whole getting better, kinder, wiser, learning from its past mistakes? And not repeating them. That's really funny because because my first engagement with a customer at CS, um, I got mm. criticised in the first week for not doing enough high level architecture. I was the lead on this right. on this project. I mm -hmm. came in halfway through, and I was like, I don't understand why why do they, why do they think that? And it turned out that because mm. I was spending a lot of time mentoring the junior staff who didn't know this technology so well, and pairing mm. with them and trying to help move them along. And I explained to them that I thought, like, your architecture is fine. Like, you, you know what you're doing. Like, the problem is not the tech. The problem is, is that your junior engineers don't understand it. And as you roll this out, they're going to have to get it. So let's invest in that. And what they actually wanted from me was like a rubber stamp of, like, your architecture is fine. But it came over as this kind of, oh, we, we think you should be doing high-level architecture. And it's like, no, no, uh, I kind of... I think I know what's better for you, but I should have actually kind of called out that uh, that your architecture was fine. I didn't realize you, you needed that from me. So it's an interesting dynamic there. Biases and preconceptions. Oh my goodness me. I'm pretty sure that if we were to have another discussion tomorrow, I think mm. we'd be on that. How to manage preconceptions because they seem to be at the, at the core of many things that we do. Uh, we assume that things are good or fit or the right thing. And when I was talking to um, Dave Farley the other day, he was saying, always assume that you're wrong, because guess what? You won't be wrong. <laughs> if you assume that you're wrong, you won't be wrong. I mean, if anything, you'll be right. You may be right. Oh, actually I was right. But you assume that you're wrong. You won't be 
negatively surprised. Uh, double check, you know, learn. Have that mindset of learning on being open to a better way because there's always a better way. And people that think that they know that their approach is best, they are the ones that need mm-hmm. this the most because it's not. Don't be sure of anything. Always double check. And if you have that approach, the sky's the limit and not even the sky. You don't ask, right? <laughs> Mars, That's whatever. Right. <laughs> Another yeah. solar system. Yeah. Okay. So this conversation, if anything, it reminded me how important it is to talk to you. And I don't think we did enough in the past, but I want that to change. Mm. Definitely. So uh, is there anything that you're looking forward to in the next six months or 12 months? Because that is a very nice segue into the next conversation. We can pick it up. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, at work, I'm moving more towards doing that high level analysis work, the lower level technical work. Mm -hmm. So I'm excited about getting more involved in that and figuring out how to be more, I guess, efficient and effective at delivering that work. Because obviously it's one thing to do the analysis. The other big thing is how do you present that information in a way that it can be heard well? Because... It's not just a logical exercise. You also, sometimes, you know, you, it's a bit like a therapeutic process in the sense that you, you can't tell the person everything you think they should do straight away. Sometimes you have to measure it out, out in spoons, like first you need this and then you need that. Sounds mm-hmm. kind of patronizing, but if you, if you overwhelm them with like, oh my God, do you need to change everything? And it's all a disaster. They might just react very badly to that. So you have to kind of balance this honesty and transparency with with this kind of how best can you help help them change or help them move towards where they want to go. Sometimes I have done it too fast, tried to like move people too fast and introduce ideas that that they're not ready for and you get a lot of pushback. Sometimes I conform too much to the way they want to think and don't push back enough. It's a really, it's an art. It's a lot of science. And and this is the stuff I'm really interested in, in learning more about. I'm really looking forward to having that conversation, Ian, six, 12 months from now, however many months it's going to be, because I think this progression, as you mentioned, is super important. So one-offs, what is one-off these days? What is transactional these days? It's like relationships, it's building blocks and journeys. You know, you build on top of conversations, you learn new things, you share those new things, you talk about them, because as you talk about them, they improve just by talking the concepts you refine them and you go back in time six months you realize actually you know what i was wrong what i thought that was right that was actually wrong however another thing which i completely disconsidered proved out to be very important and that's what i've learned and i think that's really important i think we we are getting better at that i see conferences that you know are long-standing and every six months you have an, a kubecon that's a great example so many relationships are built and so many ideas get born and then just they fly. WTF is SRE. That was a great conference. Platform was really good, by the way. I really enjoyed that. Uh, and I'm sure there are like many other things like that that will emerge as the world around us changes. The world is not the same and it won't be the same again. 2020 taught us so many things. Those that wanted to learn because others are still blind and they still claim everything's back as normal to normal and it will be back to normal. It won't. But that's not even the point. The point is, where are we going? Where do we want to go? And shipping it, such a small part. Important, but such a small part. Ian, it was my pleasure. 
Thank you for your time. And I look forward to speaking with you next time. Thank you, Gerhard. It was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. That's it for this episode of Ship It. Thank you for tuning in. We have a bunch of podcasts for developers at Changelog that you should check out. Subscribe to the master feed at changelog.com forward slash master to get everything we ship. I want to personally invite you to join your fellow Changeloggers at changelog.com forward slash community. It's free to join and stay. Leaving, on the other hand, will cost you some happiness credits. Come hang with us in Slack. There are no imposters. Everyone is welcome. Huge thanks again to our partners, Fastly, LaunchDarkly, and Linode. Also, thanks to Breakmaster Cylinder for making all our awesome beats. That's it for this week. See you next week. Thank you.